0: Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest, a returning guest, is Randy Kritkowski, and we're going to be talking about his book, um, as, uh, Without Reservation, as well as talking a little bit about the recent um, media spotlight on Indian residential schools. Um, That's a topic that Randy wrote about in his book, Without Reservation, Awakening to Native American Spirituality in the Ways of Our Ancestors. While the media stories are grim and tend to churn the same details, Randy's writing attempts to present steps toward healing. In that spirit, Randy spent months researching, reflecting on, and writing about additional measures that can be taken to move beyond being mired in tragedy. He began to explore forgiveness and its role it has played in the healing of other communities who have experienced genocide and or coerced cultural assimilation. Randy Krakowski is president and co-founder of Ecologia. He is is trained as a sociologist and historian, and his interests have focused on societies undergoing profound economic and cultural transitions. Randy is enrolled as a tribal member of the Citizen Patuotomi Nation and is now living in Vermont. Um, you can find out more about Randy by visiting his website, which is randyprickowski.com. And that's randy, K-R-I-T-K-A-U-S-K-Y.com. And you can also find out more about Ecologia by visiting that website, which is ecologia.org. Okay, with that, I'd like to welcome Brandy to the show. Good day, Randy.
1: Bonjour. Good day to you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. It is good to have you back on. It's been almost a year since we chatted last, so um, I'm I'm really kind of uh, anxious to hear about what's been going on with you during that time period.
1: It's, it's been a great deal, um, and right now we're having violent storms, so if my sound is interrupted or I need to speak louder, let me know. The phone lines here in rural Vermont can be a little dicey during a thunderstorm.
0: I am sure. I am sure. So, um, yeah, as a matter of fact, when you had indicated that to me before, I, I quickly plugged uh, your a- area into the, the weather channel. I thought, oh, my God, that is a big storm there. But luckily, it looks like it might be passing by quickly, so hopefully we'll be okay.
1: So to to return to your question, um, you know, it's been a year and it's it's been a very strange year because as a new author, one normally goes out on the road and, you know, does community um, presentations and book readings as an author. Um, And I've been, like so many of us across the face of the globe, isolated um, at home and doing zoom interviews and telephone interviews with wonderful um people like you so the, the word about the book is getting out and then all of a sudden in the midst of this isolation um the news about indian residential schools hit and now people are contacting me asking me you know gee what kind of do i'm a descendant of someone who was probably part of the makings of this system i feel guilty it's it's been a very very strange ride for me um in part because i want to be sympathetic to my descendants of um you know colonial settlers and on the other hand um i'm sort of reeling reading hundreds at this point of news stories about the revelations of the um schools and should we take a deep breath and give a one-minute thumbnail sketch of what the issue is for people who might have missed the story?
0: Yeah, yeah, that would, that, that would be great. We, well, yeah, do that, and then um, also, now you talked about them in your book, too, so can you um, kind of, in telling and kind of framing what the, the news story is, um, include, you know, what you had in your book about them?
1: Thank you. Thank you. That, that, that's, that's a great way of doing it because it's literally functioning on two levels. One is the profoundly personal familial history with these Indian residential schools, and the other is this you know, sort of abstract you know, media cultural event which is now filling the Canadian news on an almost daily basis. And um, you know, the U.S. news, it's died down to a story every two days, but you know, it was headline-grabbing for, for two months. So let, let me back up and, and do it personally. Um, you know, two, two and a half, three years ago, before we talked, when I was finishing up the book, I wrote a chapter about my grandfather um, who grew up in Oklahoma and, like so many young Indian kids at the end of the 19th century, was sent away to what was called an Indian residential school. And most of the children who were sent away were not sent because their parents wanted them. They were sent because the Bureau of Indian Affairs basically said, you will go, you will send your kids. If you don't, we will reduce your food rations. Um, in Canada, notoriously, um, they actually had people driving around in cars scooping up children, the most famous of which happened in the 1960s. It's called the 1960s scoop, when kids suddenly you know, were walking down the street and a uh, man in a nice, big, shiny car offered a ride, and they didn't see their parents for four more years. So this is not a phenomenon that just happened at the end of the 19th century. It's been going down um, into my, my lifetime. But my, my grandfather went to these schools, three of them, not one of them, at the very end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And as the newspaper articles have made quite clear, you know, when my grandfather got there, Um, You know, he was given um, an an English name if he didn't have one. Um, Kids who had Indian names were told point on the board to one of the English written names. That's now your name. You can't use your other name. And to a degree that we'll talk about in a moment, um, students were either limited or absolutely prohibited from speaking their indigenous language. Their hair was cut. They lived in dormitories, and boys wore basically military-style uniforms. And as the narrative and the media goes, the plan behind this was to finish the final chapter of forcing Native Americans to become more like European mainstream Americans. The term that we use is assimilation, you know, brought into the mainstream. Um, Their religion was very often denigrated They were very often given very strict training and whatever new religion was associated with the people running the schools. Typically, it was Christianity. And overall, it was a traumatic experience. The trauma, I think, has been accentuated in the media because the living conditions were miserable. Um, It was the time of the Spanish flu for many of the students. And many, many, many students died in these schools some of them under mysterious circumstances, others under circumstances that were simply never explained to the family. The kids never just didn't come home. You know, a message was sent saying, you know, sorry, your son, your daughter died, and that was the end of it. So now they're digging up graves at these schools and trying to determine what really happened. So it's literally exhuming bodies, and it's exhuming a really painful chapter in history
0: yeah i was amazed to read at how many um bodies have been you know um located you know in in, in the 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 graves and in, in denmark graves and now and, and when you said that this you know has been has gone on it wasn't simply the you know the nineteen hundreds i mean um it I noticed that uh, the last residential school closed in 1997. That is like recent history. I mean, that is you know there. So there are. It seems that there there would be um, a good number of people um, who are impacted still to, alive. You know, and impacted as a result of those residential um, sites.
1: That that is correct, and that has been one of the real shocks for the public because. I think many decent people like to think this was something that our ignorant ancestors did um, but didn't happen in our own lifetimes. The fact of the matter is it did happen in our lifetimes. And as you said, there are many residential school survivors out there who are still struggling to come to terms with what happened, and their families are struggling to come to terms with what Um, is known in the medical profession, the psychological profession, as intergenerational trauma. Um, And since this is a program that is supposed to be about healing, let's begin talking about the trauma, and then I'm going to, as quickly as I can, without ignoring the ugly realities, talk about how to overcome it. So in in my grandfather's case, as I said, he went to three of these schools, I mean, literally from the age of something like seven to 18, he was in one school after another, and it was a major part of his life, it was virtually his entire, you know, his his entire youth and adolescence, and he never spoke a word of it to his children Mm -hmm. or to his grandchildren. I used to sit on his lap, as I describe in my book, and he would tell me about, World War One and being mustard-gassed in and trenches and the horrors of war, but he could not bring himself to talk about what went on at the school. And we never felt motivated, never felt it appropriate you know, to prod him and say, would you please tell us that story? Um, so part of my own healing and part of our sort of family's trauma, I guess if you want to call it that, is wondering what he lived through, what he suffered, and what he needed and he never got. So, as you know from reading my book, that was a huge question mark until I saw a play in Montreal um, about Canadian residential schools. It was a musical. It was a work of fiction, but it was deeply, deeply researched. And for the first time in my life, um, I suddenly saw through my grandfather's eyes what it was like to be a kid in one of these schools. And mm. it was a small theater, and as I describe in the book, we got tickets at the last minute. So we were literally sitting one meter from a stage that was almost at floor level, and the play took place almost in my lap. And wow. I really didn't, I didn't know if I could endure it. Um, but then there came a moment when suddenly instead of being angry and upset and on the verge of you know losing it in tears it was as if i felt the presence of my grandfather's spirit and he was saying "randy this is the story i could never tell you" and i had this incredible sense of relief that part of his healing and some people talk about ancestral healing not just Healing generations, you know, into the future. But sometimes I'm, I'm I'm beginning to think that our ancestors' spirits, as well as their descendants, um, need this kind of healing, and that intergenerational trauma doesn't just extend down the line into the future as abuse is passed down within families, as we know it is. But I'm beginning to feel very, very strongly that it is left as an unresolved issue in our past. So that's been part of my journey.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, and the idea of the healing being um, uh, impacting only, you know, in future generations, um, isn't there um, uh, a Native American perspective of the um Impacting eight generations into the future, eight generations in the past, kind of thing, where one's actions can impact that.
1: Yes, yes, In fact, you know there are all kinds of wonderful posters and diagrams. here in Vermont, we even have a company called Seventh Generation, which is based on oh, this seven. notion mm-hmm. of Native Americans think in terms of seven generations. Sometimes that idea is extended. Um, into the future only, the notion being that we should think far, Hmm. far into the future about the implications of what we're doing, for example, climate change seven generations into the future, I think more and more often now something a bit more accurately representing what Native Americans thought is coming into focus, and that is that we stand in the middle of this band of seven generations And we look back three, and we look forward three. So that makes seven. Mm -hmm. We're one, three back, three forward. And the healing process and the connection with our ancestors extends three generations back and three into the future. In a sense, if you think about it, it makes intuitive sense because in a society where we're lucky enough to have ancestors and children who survive, we get to know our great-grandparents and we get to know our great-grandchildren. Add that up, for standing in the middle, we have the seven. So the the notion here, again, is that we must be stewards, we must be caretakers, we must be healers, we must participate in the collective memory and the interests of our seven generations.
0: Yeah, okay, seven. Um, You know, it's one of those things where... um, you know just to recognize that you know taking on the healing of of the experience of an experience really you know can um the fact that it can it seems to me that you know if if it's logical where um trauma gets passed on to future generations that then being in the present one, then our past generations would have passed on, you know, that trauma. So it seems that then if we can resolve that trauma, um, that it's just, um, it radiates out, I would think, you know, in the sense that um, energetically, that it's no longer a um, debilitating or or a, a negative type of energetic
1: influence. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. And I think until maybe 20 years ago, this notion of um, handing down or inheriting um, intergenerational trauma would have been viewed as a bit undocumented and a bit mystical and suspect. But now we know from doing research on, for example, trees, that within one generation of trees growing up in some kind of, disease trauma or some kind of drought trauma the next generation of seeds has a genetic change that predisposes them to cope with the conditions of the parents that created the seed. In other words, within one generation Mm -hmm. other living organisms shift their genetic array of responses to say, okay, I grew up in a stressed environment you better be ready to grow up in a stressed environment. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flip this switch. Be ready. We now know, um, and again, this has been really well documented, um, that parents who grow up in hyper-stressful situations, such as a war-torn country, have children who grow up with um, a, a metabolism and endocrine balances that show evidence of stress even before they experience it. In other words, they're programmed to be ready to hit the ground to deal with the bombs falling and the buildings falling down. So we now know that this this is inherited. It's, it's passed on. It isn't just a cultural thing. In addition, we all know the stories now of um, kids who are animal abusers coming from homes where there's abuse or people who are abusers themselves having grown up in abusive situations. That's probably cultural as well as physiological and maybe to some degree genetic so what the news is loaded with is this notion of oh my goodness what are we going to do all these native american tribes who have a residential school at the edge or the middle of the reservation are now looking at this vacant building and as you said they're out there with ground radar finding unidentified graves digging them up and these people are experiencing all of this over again it's 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 Truly, truly a horrific scenario.
0: Yeah, so, um, yeah, and, and I agree that it's one of those that it would, uh, I mean, it really, you know, brings up old wounds. Um, but do you feel that, um, that it's um, a necessary component to the healing process?
1: Perfect question. Thank you. Um, the answer is going to be yes, and then the big footnote, asterisk, no. <laughs> Let me explain the yes part. <laughs> as, 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 as we know, um, you know, part of any grieving process has to become coming to terms with the reality. You know, Our partner, a child, a friend dies. It, it, it takes a while for people to come to terms with what really happened. Um, our brains are slow to get around it. So I think it's important for individuals, descendants, relatives of survivors to, without wallowing in the gory details of what happened, to deal with the truth. For, for Native Americans, this isn't news. We've known this you know, for a century. For the mainstream, it's news, and we'll get, we'll get to that in a moment, and that's part of the problem that indigenous people are having to retell the story yet again to the mainstream because they tried telling it for a hundred years and they were ignored so that's the Mm -hmm. no part of my answer to your question I, i i think it's important for our societies to come to terms with to own up to and ask the question how did we allow this to happen and as you pointed out at the beginning of the show how do we allow this to happen so recently Or, as I am trying to deal with in my writing, how are we allowing similar things to happen right now? For example, in Canada and the United States, we know that there are thousands, not hundreds, but thousands of young Native women who have simply vanished from the reservation. Some of their disappearances have been investigated. Many are never investigated. So... On this one level, it's past history we're coming to terms with. On another level, it's the current reality, because in some ways things haven't changed for many Native Americans. So my, my answer to your question is, to the degree that looking at the painful past helps us to be more sensitive to how it is continuing in the present, I think that's productive. To the degree that we wallow in the pain and we dwell on the gory details, I think it is harmful because then we begin to engage ourselves as indigenous people in um, carrying on this notion of intergenerational trauma. And in a sense, by telling the story that my grandfather couldn't tell to me to the next generation and the next generation, And here's the critical part for the show. By telling it in anger and in the spirit of hatred, I think we are adding to the burden of intergenerational trauma. So the question that you posed Mm -hmm. so beautifully at the opening of the show is, how do we get out of this downward spiral, and how have other people, like Jewish people, who lived through or didn't live through the Holocaust, deal with it, Armenians, we can go across the world, people in Rwanda, you know, genocide has been an aspect of life across the face of the globe throughout human history. How have these people dealt with it? And that's when some friends of mine said, Randy, let me tell you stories about people I know who've embraced forgiveness as a path out of this trap
0: okay wow, <laughs> I want to talk about that certainly um for sure uh, um the and I can understand what you were saying with the um reliving it to for the purpose of um recognizing that that it existed you know and uh and not wallowing you know mm-hmm. you know is you know, really important but what what do you um what role do you feel that um the media mainstream media um has played in the continuation of uh, um um in, in telling the story so um you know you, you mentioned earlier, you know, about that, uh, you know, for the indigenous people, it's not news. <laughs> you know, it's been going on for a long time, but for a lot of people, it is news. And um, so can you talk a little bit about um, the role the media plays with, you know, I guess, awareness, maybe raising awareness of, of the problem?
1: Sure. And I, I, I don't want to be, you know, the one who shoots the messenger, you know, you know, accuses the media of, you know, being responsible for the trauma because they, they quote, merely tell the story. On the other hand, the way you tell the story and the tone right. with which you tell the story is, you know, within the control of the media. So at first, you know, I just didn't really want to read these stories, and then I decided, you know, I was going to read every single one that came across, you know, the screen. Um, because as a historian and as an an indigenous person, I wanted to know what the media story was as opposed to the story that people on the reservation or people like me off the reservation grew up with. And what I quickly discovered Mm -hmm. was that the same handful of stories were being told over and over, and it was obvious that reporters were reading other reporters' stories and basically rewriting Mm -hmm. what they had read. And there wasn't very much new. So, you know, you, you read about the ground-penetrating radar founding, finding the unmarked graves. And then suddenly the unmarked graves become mass graves, which isn't true. You know, there's a difference between what happened in Yugoslavia where, you know, 400 people are killed, you know, in an afternoon and a bull, bulldozer does, digs a trench and bodies are thrown in, and a residential school where kids died and they put them in graves that weren't marked. That is an important difference. And then you know, there's the matter of the, the mantra, as I call it, of the residential schools prohibited the use of native language. I alluded to that earlier. It is true that many native indigenous schools did prohibit the use of language, but I'm going to refer back to my family history. My grandfather went to one of the original like flagship schools um, for indigenous um, residential schools in the United States. It was called Hampton in Hampton, Virginia. It's now a university. And the notion in the media is that he, like other students, would have been prohibited from speaking his language. It turns out that the rule was you can't speak anything other than English, Um, but you can speak your native language before breakfast, after dinner, and on weekends, hmm. so the the, the the media likes picking up the most dramatic thread of a story and making it as horrific as possible. Because, as we all know, you know the famous dictum: "If it bleeds, it leads" in the news. So the more horrific and extreme stories get told, and the nuance of what went on in residential schools doesn't get told not that i 'm apologizing for what went on i 'm just saying that right. it was a much broader band of experiences, and it was more confusing to the kids than simply clear prohibitions. yeah well that
0: 's interesting you know to to know that little nuance <laughs> that i hadn't heard before um, and you know you know it's important you know to be to have a discerning eye when it comes to reading stories and, and you know, things that are being put forward because, um, well, just as I scroll through like a, a news app, you know, I can just by the headline of the story, I can tell virtually which news outlet wrote it, you know? I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, that was a Fox or that's an MSNBC or, you know, that's, you know, what, whatever it is. I mean, it, it's it's interesting to that that it, it just comes through you know, if you're willing to look at it. You know, it comes through clearly that there's a a, a bias going into it, and, and then of course, like you say, the you know, if it leads to um, read, it leads. Then that's you know, it's. I think that part of human nature that um, is drawn to. You know the the disaster, the calamity, the you know all of the the atrociousness. Um, to me, that's it, it's odd that he, human nature is drawn to. For me, I, it, it's just odd that that is that gathers so much attention. You know, I don't know, but if that's human nature or if it's <laughs> just just me quirk.
1: Well, you know, the, 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 the painful phenomena has been commented on many times of people driving down the highway by an accident and everybody slows down because they want to see it. Um, I don't know what the psychology or physiology from our, you know, hardwired primitive brain days <laughs> is, but to some degree, um, I guess we feel a desperate need that we need to know about the horrible things that are going on so that we can protect ourselves from them. Maybe, maybe that's the yeah. excuse here. Yeah. Um, but one, but one would hope that you know, the best journalists at the best media outlets could do better, um, and, 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 and they're not. They're coming to the temptation to tell the horror story. And I'll just give you one more example, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this from reading the media leads on these residential schools. Um, you know, the, the allegation that they erased and totally destroyed Indian culture is passed along almost unquestioningly. And I find that both as a historian inaccurate and as a native person offensive. Because the fact of the matter is that the kids who went to these schools didn't come out brainwashed and turned white. You know, they went in <laughs> right. and they lost something, but they didn't lose everything. And we are more resilient and stronger than the media representation would give of us. You know, we, didn't, we didn't have the last tiny crumbs and vestiges of our culture wrung out of us at, at these schools. What's going on on Native reservations all across North America, including Canada, is an incredible revitalization of indigenous culture. So it, it might have been yeah. discouraged. It might have been shut down. But at the same time, going back to my own family history, my aunt, who was a cousin of my grandfather in the Indian school, found other people having similar experiences, and when she graduated, she co-founded the first Pan-American Indian movement. It was hugely significant. So in the midst of trauma, natives were responding by saying, okay, what are we going to do next? and they began to push back. It was the beginning of what we saw in the 20th century, you know, the American Indian movement and American Indian militarism. It was all born of people being thrown together in the residential schools saying, hey, we can't stand as individuals and as individual tribes, let's unify and do something about this mess. So human history is always much more nuanced, much more complex than a victor and a loser story. And I don't think this is a victor and a loser story. Yeah,
0: it it certainly is, gosh. Well, we're halfway uh, through the show, Randy, so I wanna take just a quick break. Um, And I do want to invite listeners, if you wanna call in and ask any questions, you can call in at 619-789-4359. And those those of you listening live in the chat room, you can feel free to type in any questions there and then when we come back from break Randy I want to um, dig into um, the forgiveness aspect you know and um, how how that can play into moving forward okay perfect great everyone stay tuned we'll be right back after this brief break hello this is Robert Sharp I want to thank you for joining us and hope that you are enjoying today's show just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,400 shows we have had over the past nine years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, photography, a wellness store, and self-publishing assistance. Our show is a free podcast on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on many social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms at the top of our homepage. Our website Bikeradio.me has much for you to explore and enjoy i also very much appreciate you supporting our guests and especially today's guest and now back to the show Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Randy Pritkowski and we are talking about um, his work, his book, uh, Without Reservation, Awakening to Native American Spirituality and the Ways of Our Ancestors. And we're also talking about the recent stories about the First Nations um, Residential School crises that kind of is going on. So you can find out more about Randy by visiting his website, which is randykritkowski.com And that's Randy, and then K-R-I-T-K-A-U-S-K-Y.com. And also you can find out more about uh, the nonprofit that he is co-founder of, Ecologia, at E-C-O-L-O-G-I-A dot org. And I do want to say, but before you bring Randy back in, um, I was reading an, an article from CBC News. And at the end of the article, it had an 800 number for those who may need emotional or some crisis referral services. And, and that's the National Indian Residential School Crisis Number. And that phone number is 866-925-4419. Again, it's 866-925-4419. And, again, that is the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line. Okay, with that, we're back. Randy?
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving out that information. That is critical and occasionally life-saving information for people who are struggling with severe uh, psychological trauma.
0: Yeah, it, it can be, and you know, and it's um, some people just wouldn't know where to go, and and you know, it, we all touch the lives of so many people that you know, if it's not us that could use that, there may be somebody in our circle who could use that information. So it's, I always like to put that out when it's available. So um, forgiveness. Yeah, uh, you mentioned in the first part of the show that when it came time to talking to people about how survivors like, the Holocaust or other types of um, cultural um, assimilation kinds of things or genocide have happened, that that one of the things that came out of the discussions was that forgiveness was the key. So can you tell us about, you know, once you heard that information, what did you do in exploring about forgiveness as a part of the healing process?
1: So fortunately, before the information on the residential schools um, came into the media, Some friends and colleagues of mine that I've worked with um, in China, um, um, through the work of Ecologia, um, had discussed the work they have done on forgiveness. So I I had a a more open mind. um, To be specific, these people are from an intentional community. It's a Christian community. It's called the Bruderhof. They're similar to Mennonites, to oversimplify, and they have... Um, these um, wonderful um, um, communities up and down the Hudson River area. They have some in England. They have one in Australia. And part of their work um, is to help people heal. They are not um, evangelical. Um, It's quite possible to have multiple conversations with them and not even realize that you're talking to someone who is, um, you know, deeply religious. So in one of these conversations, um, our friends mentioned work they had done with people from Rwanda, where there had been absolutely horrific genocide um, a few decades ago. And what our colleagues did is they had some Holocaust survivors work with people in Rwanda to talk about how to get from a continuing spiral of hatred and revenge to healing both individually and societally and when I first heard this you know, I was, I have to say, incredulous it's like, my God, how could these people forgive? How could they forget? and then my friends explained forgiving and forgetting are very different things um, forgiveness doesn't mean that you just don't think about it, or you don't ask the society to think about it or it doesn't mean that you don't ask for legal justice what it means is You let go of the hatred and the revenge cycle. So they have a book, a beautiful book. It's called Why Forgive? Um, It's available through their publishing house, which is Plow. And in the book, there are numerous stories of people who suffered just outrageous, tragic twists of fate. Sometimes it was murder. Sometimes it was an accident that took all the members of their family and in each case the people found a need not a religious moral obligation but a need to get out of a self-destructive cycle of feeling angry and bitter and the quote that leaped out of the book for me was a quote by Nelson Mandela whom many of the listeners will know was a you know an incredible activist for Racial justice in South Africa. He was imprisoned for 23 years, most of it in solitary confinement. And when he was released, he became a social healer. He became part of a process in South Africa called truth and reconciliation. It's the same terms the Canadians are using to deal with indigenous populations. Nelson Mandela said the following holding on to bitterness is like taking poison to take revenge on your enemy. I'm going to repeat it because it's absolutely magnificent. Holding on to bitterness is like taking poison in order to get revenge on your enemy. What Nelson Mandela had learned in isolation and soul searching, and I'm sure years of prayer, was that, He was not benefiting, and his enemies were not being harmed by his being angry and bitter and seeking revenge. He was paying the price. So what our colleagues and friends began to discuss with us is how they've worked with Holocaust survivors and others who individually, sometimes on their own, found their way to concluding that it was better to forgive not turn the other cheek and be a victim again not to forget but to let go of the hatred and the anger because it destroys the person who tries to hold it in the palm of their hand i think this lesson is relevant to what's happening in many indigenous communities today we know from reading the news reports and i'm sure you saw them you know, there were places where angry people burned down churches on reservations, Mm -hmm. as if that would some settle the score. I can understand that. I can understand why people in urban areas, when there's a horrific police killing, go out and burn and loot. I can understand it. I don't quite want to be part of it, but I can understand it. What my colleagues are asking, and what I'm asking is, is that really the path forward? Or do we need to let go of the hatred and with a calmer, more dispassionate, more rational mind, ask the question, how did we get in this mess and how can we get out of it? Not, how can I tell my children they should hate the fill in the blank, you know, whatever the out group is. So I'm really intrigued with this notion of forgiveness and I'm finding it resonating not just with native americans but with friends that i meet in a casual conversation you know i'll, I'll have the discussion i just had with you i'll give them the mandela quote and they will go absolutely dumbstruck silent and say i need to forgive my mother it's just out of the clear blue i think we all carry wounds that we wish we could forgive someone for
0: Yep, I have a friend who says it's, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. <laughs> so you know, I can understand. <laughs> I can understand how. But you know, um, I mean, they're obviously the, the nurturing part of, of one's you know youth. So there's a, obviously that very important role. And, and uh, you know, but but it, uh, the the holding on and the, the anger is um, is. Debilitating to the individual, not to not to the person who's the object of that, and um, and I think we one of the big um, challenges for some people is, is that idea of you know when you said you know, forgive but not forget or or n- mm-hmm. not. Um, keep in regard, you know, there's a reason for justice. You know, how come, you know, justice needs to be a part of the picture as well. And I think some people just feel that um, justice, unless they are angry and continue to voice anger and and that kind of thing, that then justice won't be served. You know, I'm I'm just kind of... that's just a, from what I've seen of some people who who are very, um, just very angry people, you know. And, and you know, when I've tried to approach it from a, you know, forgiving is a, you know, is going to help you and that kind of thing. Because I've, you know, I think we, you know, it's, it's out there now that you know that it's forgiveness is very. I mean, the um, holding on to anger and hate and that kind of thing is very know affects the individual in very physical kinds of ways that um so but moving from the knowledge of that to implementing you know to actually forgiving um someone is uh, for some can be a challenge
1: yes and i i think for many many people who are angry and injured not just native americans that we're talking about today um they view Um, forgiveness as weakness you know there's this this notion which is oversimplified um, you you know taken from the bible of you know turn the other cheek which is sometimes misinterpreted as oh you know this person assaulted me I'll just turn the other cheek and then walk away what it really what it is really calling for is having the strength to not mindlessly strike back it doesn't say don't defend yourself it's saying don't mindlessly strike back and don't respond in anger and fear so as you were saying a moment ago and as i've been learning recently the way we respond to injustice in our society is to incarcerate the people who victimize us in absolutely deplorable prison conditions where very often there is no treatment for what put them there, whether it's drugs or a psychological ailment. They're not given um, very often um, you know, e- educational training. Their families are kicked into ever-deeper poverty. They come out of the prison with a high rate of recidiv- recidivism, and the next generation, because of having an absent parent, um, is predisposed to continue the cycle. So... You know, is it better perhaps to forgive and to begin the healing? So in this book I was referring to, you know, there's a, there's a very I mean, beautiful story of, you know, of, of, a, of a family that has, you know, a large number of them killed in a car accident by a drunk driver. And you, the typical response would be, you know, to go to court and demand that this person be locked away forever. Um, you know, or some people might say, gee, I wish we had the death penalty. Other people say, this person you know, is a victim of his own behavior. His family is going to be a victim of his behavior. I'm going to forgive him to the degree that I'm not going to allow myself to hate him. And in some cases, the people that act, acted on forgiveness actually ended up slowly, over literally years, befriending the person in prison as they were rehabilitated and trying to work with them and their family, so that the situation that resulted in the collective tragedy that was inflicted, both mm-hmm. on the perpetrator and the victim, isn't repeated. To me, that is the human spirit at its absolute best. That's not weakness. That's strength.
0: It is. It is very much so. And, and I am amazed, you know, at people who do that. You know, in, in the sense that it's, it is. Uh, Something that we don't see often, and if we were to see more of that, there would be a whole bunch, a whole lot of uh, less conflict in the world, and and um, I mean, it really could would make a major shift if if people just took that perspective and in, in in the attention to healing.
1: You know, I, I I brought it down at one point in our conversation. You know, to anecdotes that I've had. You know. With, a few little outdoor gatherings we have with friends these days are street corner conversations. Mm-hmm. But there's another level on which this applies, I think, and that goes back to the work that my wife and I have done for decades internationally on the environment um, with Ecologia. We've worked you know, on nuclear power plant issues in Russia, on Chernobyl, disappearing lakes, and desertification in China. And more and more in the last five years, when I meet people, they say, You know, Mother Earth is really angry at us and is punishing us for what we've done. And I look at them as a Native American, and I'm incredulous. And I say to them, Hmm. Mother Earth doesn't punish us. Mother Earth is not angry. Mother Earth, to use the terms of today, is forgiving. And if you look around, you will find signs of offering healing. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine who was a former um, student of mine when I was teaching college now sells pearls in Japan and he read and he, uh, wrote to me and he said you know, even in the midst of chaos and tragedy like the tsunami and the floods that hit Japan famously and took out Fukushima, he said what happened is the sea was re and actually the oyster beds that make the pearls and in many cases, the fish benefited. He said, in the midst of chaos and injury, healing begins. So if, if we're going to forgive, maybe the hardest form of forgiveness is to forgive ourselves. And I think if listeners think about that, each of us has some dark secret, some Barb under our fingernail that we've carried our whole lives saying I wish I hadn't done that we've beat ourselves up on that little misdeed for decades we need to forgive ourselves and move on I think we need to do the same thing with planetary healing yes what we've done is in some ways inexcusable but we're not looking for excuses what we're looking for is a path Healing, and what we're being greeted with is not an angry, punitive, bitter, vengeful Mother Nature. What we're looking at is a Mother Nature that keeps forgiving and keeps offering opportunities to heal together. So this 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 theme of forgiveness cuts all the way from the sort of microcosm of our individual mm-hmm.
0: psyche, you know,
1: <laughs> to dealing with the cosmos. It's it's a beautiful concept.
0: Yeah. It- it crosses time and space (laughs) really um so um well guys we're we're getting down toward the end of the show but i do want to talk just a little bit about ecologia um can you share with the listeners what 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 it is and what kinds of um services or programs you offer there
1: So we we founded Ecologia in 1989, um, appropriate today's show, because we were the first wave of people going into what was then the Soviet Union. They were our arch enemies. We all thought they were going to try to blow us up in a nuclear war, and they thought the same of us. And on our first trip, we were the first wave of people in as tourists. We found that, A, they were, A, forgiving, and they wanted to establish peaceful relations. So we began working on environmental issues. We helped set up environmental NGOs and did that work for about 20 years. Today, we're a much smaller organization, and we have come to the conclusion that the difficult, monstrous issues we've worked on, including climate change, can only be resolved if we have a shift of our, our spirit, if you want to call it that, a mind um, paradigm shift, a shift in our hearts embracing Mother Nature that we can't just reason our way to saving this planet. So after 30 years of science and policy and training people to monitor water, what we're working on now is very much the kind of thing that I'm currently talking to you about, which is applying indigenous perspectives and spirituality to altering our mindset so that we heal this planet with mother earth
0: yeah you know and it's um i think for some people by framing the pers- uh, the perspective in that paradigm in the um framework of native american or indigenous um people's i think for some people it's easier for them to um, i say uh, accept some i think people like structure like you know um organization in, in in the sense that you know where the um by by having by presenting things that are you know in that native american frame, framework um you, It takes out of the um, Gaia and angry Earth, and you know, I mean, it 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 really, I guess that's uh, maybe the seed for that paradigm shift or that perspective shift.
1: Yeah, there's 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 a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of frustration. COVID hasn't helped. Um, Recent. Politics in the United States, regardless of which side you're on, has been a (laughs) spiral of anger and demonization. And if we could all take a breath and forgive one another and cease wanting revenge and punishment of one another, I think maybe we could get this thing set in the right direction. It's, 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 It's pretty simple, but it's, of course, easier said than done. But we have to try. That's what we're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and now I, I do want to let uh, listeners know that on your com website, you have a wonderful post about um, Native American reflections on COVID nineteen. So that's uh, well worth a read for for listeners to go and check that out. Um, so, Randy, any any kind of final words? I mean, we we talked about the you know the um, the schools, uh, the residents schools, um, and so what maybe final words might you have for listeners kind of going forward?
1: The message I would like people to take away is, is, is two, it's simple. I'm going to give it on two levels very quickly. One is to consider the, the value of forgiveness in your personal life, in your family life, in your community life, in your political life and also in our engagement, um, you know, with, with Mother Nature. And the other is this isn't just something that is accessible only for indigenous people or, you know, people who are saints or Nelson Mandela strength. You know, this is something that any normal human being can begin to do in our own bumbling way. And as my friends who are helping me to go down this path have said many times, it may be that you have to get up each day and forgive the same person once again because even though you succeeded in forgiving them yesterday, you're feeling bitter again today. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, it's it's like recovering from any trauma or addiction. (laughs) Sometimes letting go requires multiple efforts.
0: Yeah, it depends on how deep the the cut is, <laughs> you know, as far as the healing to to occur. Um, well, Randy, I really want to thank you for your time today. I've enjoyed our conversation. And I'm glad that we were able to catch up and find out, you know, what was going on. And I really appreciate your perspective on the, the, the residential um, situation, you know, because um, I know for me, you know, whenever I'm going to come across a um, – an article, I'm going to go ahead and look at it, you know, with um, discerning eyes, you know, to, to see if there is um, what part of the pieces may be missing or maybe how people are presenting things and just uh, and be curious just to find
1: out more. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, within the week, I'll have on my website a fact sheet FAQs about the residential schools where I deal with some of these attempts to correct um, Misinterpretations, exaggerations of what happened at the schools, and I, I deeply appreciate the good work you're doing. Keep it up, and uh, as we say in Potawatomi, miigwech. That's thank you, thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Again, everyone today, my special guest has been Randy Kritkowski, and we've been talking about um, well, his book, which is without reservation, awakening it to Native American spirituality and the ways of our ancestors. And we've been also talking about the um, current, the, the current um, attention that it be, is being drawn to. Um, residential schools so Indian residential schools so everyone I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show and until we meet again thank you for tuning in you've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show remember our show is available as a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio iTunes Tune In and iHeartRadio. Radio to follow our show visit our homepage at ByteRadio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Radio Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. Thanks. I I really appreciate that. Listen, you have a good day.